Well, I'm excited today. Did you enjoy the call to worship this morning? That was a great one. I loved it. Jeff read to us from Psalm 95. I'm going to go ahead and read that again. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it is He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the God, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Amen? This is not only a well-known passage among Christians, but if you were a first-century Jew, you knew this psalm by heart. The original audience of Hebrews would know these lyrics well, and they would probably have even sung them to a particular tune. Now, what you may not have realized is that uh, Jeff stopped in the middle of verse 7. You say, well, that's unusual. Not that uh, chapter breaks or verses are inspired. They're not, but he stopped in the middle of verse 7. But it is the second part of verse 7 that was a Jew's call to worship. You see, at the beginning of Shabbat, Friday evening or Saturday morning, the call to worship would be Psalm 95, second part of verse 7 through verse 11. Go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 95, and I want to show you something very interesting. We recognize the part here in verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Now imagine you're a first century Jew. Come on, it's time to go to Shabbat. It's time to go to the synagogue and worship. And when you get there, this is what you hear today. If you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massach in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. That's a little different than the first part of this psalm, isn't it? Come, let us worship and bow down before the Lord our Maker. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts like your daddies did. You want to talk about the seriousness of worship? 
That was a Jew's call to worship in the synagogue every week. And that is the text that the author of Hebrews uses in chapter 3. Would you pray with me and we'll look at this text together? Our gracious Father, we are so excited to sit under your word. And we hear the exhortation to not harden our hearts. We don't understand all that that means, but I pray through the word of God today that you would illuminate our hearts, that you would grant us understanding, that you would strengthen our faith, and that you would help us to heed this warning. Father, we are excited to be here. We are excited to worship you, both in song, in prayer, in fellowship, and most of all, in sitting and responding to the preached Word of God. We know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ, and we know that that faith, that faith that is given at salvation is also strengthened by the Word. And so may we be a people of the Word today. May this not be some sort of intellectual exercise where we just learn more, but may it travel the 18 inches to our heart and then pour out of the very fabric of our being as ambassadors for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we want to know you better. We want to understand this great salvation that you have given us. Do a work today. Do a work through this poor, stammering tongue. Why you have chosen man to declare the glories of our Lord Jesus is beyond us. Who is up for such a task? There, there could have been so many other ways by which you have communicated your word to us. And yet you love us enough to allow us to take part in this great proclamation. And so I pray that this sermon today would be preached over and over again as it reverberates back and forth through the pews and out these doors and into our workplace and with our family and our friends. Father, fill these chairs with the cries of new converts, with the cries of spiritual babes, and use us to advance your kingdom in this way. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, these last four weeks have certainly been super encouraging to both the original audience in the first century and I know to us in the 21st century. Just because this is written to uh, believing Jews doesn't mean that it won't greatly impact believing Gentiles. Amen? From chapter 2, verse 5, all the way through last week, for four weeks, we've seen this author preach in such a way that has put, just the, has put wind in the sails of our faith, especially in the middle of a tempest. We know that this, this church, I imagine it's in Rome we talked about, it's probably meeting in a house, they're suffering. They've lost property. Friends have been arrested. They've even known people who've died. But they themselves have not experienced death yet. 
But suffering is here. It's at their doorstep and it's on the horizon. We've talked about trying to get our our head around this book so that we can take it with us wherever we go. That we can understand not only the argument, but the progression. And so two weeks ago, after hearing from a lot of you saying, hey, I like that. I like to know where we're at. I like to know where we've been. I've been kind of introducing this little three-minute recap, and I think it helps us. So if you don't mind redundancy, I think I'm going to do it again. I'm going to switch it up a little bit each week, but I think it helps us know where we've been and sets us up to know where we're going. Hold fast. Hold fast to our faith, he says, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't look back. Jesus is no mere man, but he is the perfect man. He is the creator, the son of God, and no creation is even close or worthy of our worship. Certainly not angels. Angels were not created to rule. Man was, and he is the perfect man. He is the very embodiment and fulfillment of what we see in Genesis 2 and in Psalm 8, where man was created to rule and subdue. But as a result of Adam's fall, we fell all. But with the second Adam, who lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved, we saw the death of death and the death of Christ. And He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and now he is seated at the right hand of God. And you say, but with all this suffering, it doesn't feel like he is ruling, and I can't see him. All I see is chaos. And the author says, then see him in Scripture, for what you cannot see, inform your mind by what you can. The God-man, as incarnated, spoke, and the wind and the waves became immediately still. The blind could see. The lame could walk. The dead rose. Yes, it is difficult now to see the forest for the trees amid the suffering and the chaos, but He is indeed ruling already, but not yet completely like it will be when the kingdom is consummated. But you say, the suffering is crushing me. And even though I know that intellectually, I don't feel like anyone really understands what it feels like. I feel like I'm going crazy. Our church is discouraged. People are leaving. We're mocked. We're called a cult. Something must be wrong. This can't be how it was meant to play out. No one understands. The author says, Oh, but Jesus understands. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. He is the one who championed over death through suffering. Greater suffering than you've ever experienced, and yet it was part of the plan. As a high priest, he stands in solidarity with us because he became like us. He knows what it's like to be tempted in all things, and yet he didn't quit. And he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted to do the same. So, you're not going crazy. 
Consider Jesus. Think deeply about who He is and what He has done, what He went through and what He has come to do. Think about Him drawing near to you because He is near. Think about Him in comparison to the greatest man you've ever known. The greatest hero you can imagine. Compare Him to Moses. As great as Moses was, there is really no comparison. It is Jesus who is worthy of all our affection. And it is the suffering church that needs to see this and understand who He is and what He has done so that they will be able to endure. Well, that brings us up to speed. So far, I'm really encouraged. I'd, I'd kind of like to stay on the encouragement side of things, right? I don't like exhortation as much. Does anyone? And yet, we need it. Look, good preaching is comforting the afflicted. But it's also afflicting the comfortable, isn't it? This is a sermon. And being the good preacher that he is, and I, I would say the Holy Spirit is the best, right? He's going to preach in such a way that he gives us several weeks of encouragement. But also like a good preacher, he's going to stop and he's going to look us in the eye and he's going to say, Hey, hey, I'm serious about this. Don't sit there if you're not really a believer and think that everything's going to be fine. Don't hold on to your conversion if there's not fruit in your life. If you're the one drifting away, wake up. Because there's more at stake than you realize. And that's what he's going to do today. And we need these warning passages. As I mentioned this morning in equipping hour, if we don't believe that salvation is monergistic, that it is God who not only saves by grace through faith, and grace is that which saves a man and changes a man and perseveres through a man, if we don't believe that, then, then I just become the suggester up here. But if we believe that Christians are indeed sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then we can preach with an unction for change, trusting that Christians will obey. Christians will trust and obey. And that's what this author is doing. So he starts this warning passage. And this warning, if you're, if you're, you're taking notes, we're in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It's going to run all the way through chapter 4, verse 14. That's a whole pericope right there. And there seems to be several consistent themes that run throughout. Here's a couple I wrote down. Professing believers who, one, develop an unbelieving or hard heart. And we're going to talk about what that means in a moment. Number two, resulting in God's wrath abiding on them. A hard heart resulting in God's wrath and then number three, being able, being unable to enter God's rest. We're just going to take verse 7 through the end of the chapter today, and we're going to see two things. One, we're going to see an Old Testament illustration, 
and a New Testament exhortation. We're going to see the principle at place, an illustration and an exhortation. If you want to look ahead till next week, chapter 4, we're going to see the practical of exactly how you avoid having an unbelieving hard heart by fearing God rather than your circumstances. That'll preach, right? Fearing God rather than your circumstances. Trusting in His Word and entering His rest. You're going to see that word rest a whole lot. But let me open with a question here. Why is trusting in God to the end of our spiritual journey so essential, so important? So we want to answer today. Principally, explain this to me. Now look back, if you will, at verse 6, where we ended last week, and, and look how it sets up this message today. Chapter 3, verse 6, second half, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We are God's house if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Two simple points today. One, you might want to write this down. Illustration of a Kadesh heart. K-A-D-E-S-H. Illustration of a Kadesh heart. And number two, exhortation to avoid a Kadesh heart. He wants this original audience to dip back into the Hebrew Scriptures and see what happened. And then now take that and see to it yourselves. See what happened and then apply it to our lives. You know, the great thing about Hebrews is I don't have to come up with these elaborate, difficult illustrations. I don't have to go buy a, a book of preaching illustrations to, to hear some, you know, apocryphal story that, that, of course, we know is not really true, but it'll preach really well, right? No, I mean, I get to preach the truth as illustrated in the Old Testament. I get to, I get to preach truth in, in Bible dress, as I heard one preacher say it. And there is no greater illustration than real events that happened in the first 39 books of the Old Testament, of, of the Bible. All right, illustration of a Kadesh heart. Let's look at this together. The question we're answering is, why is trusting God to the end of our spiritual journey so important? Why is it so essential? Because, hey, don't we believe in once saved, always saved? Wow. We don't? Of course we do. You can say amen there. Yeah. We believe, in one, we believe in eternal security. We believe in what Christ did on the cross. It is His work that we trust in for salvation. We don't earn it. We didn't do anything to gain it. We can't do anything to lose it. So, so I either got to allegorize all this, I got to do a lot of spiritual gymnastics, or I got to take it as it's preached. Okay? Election is unconditional. Justification is unconditional. Glorification. Glorification is conditional. We used that phrase when we started about eight weeks ago. How does all that fit if we're saved by grace through faith? And what is it about an unbelieving heart and not being able to enter into God's rest? 
Well, as I mentioned, verses 7 through 11 are a direct quote from the Greek translation of Psalm 95. So, you know, we've been back there. You don't have to turn there now. But it's kind of like, uh, kind of like a treasure map, isn't it? Studying Hebrews here. Ooh, I see block lettering. That means it's coming from the first part of my Bible. It's a lot more sticky than the second part. I'm going to have to go discover what this is. So you, you go back there. So, this is right out of Psalm 95. In fact, really the only difference is uh, my Bible, which is from the Hebrew text, instead of saying rebellion and testing, actually mentions the names Meribah and Masah. And if you remember your Israelite history, you'll know that after 40 years, they began to grumble and quarrel with Moses and complain, and they were thirsty. And God sent them to a rock where he was going to bring water out of it, and they named that place Meribah, rebellion, and Massah, testing. But this text really seems to drill down on an even more specific instance in describing the Israelites. Write down Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 13 and 14. I'm going to leave it for your homework this week. I want you to read through it. I'm going to give you an overview, but it's worth reading. And it's, it's really interesting to see how the author is going to parallel it to what's going on with these first century Jewish believers who are thinking about punting Jesus and going back to Judaism. Let me first bring us up to speed. So in this treasure map, we go from Hebrews chapter 3. It says, go to the next place. I'm looking for X marks the spot, but I get the midpoint of, of Psalm 95, and really that's referring to Numbers chapter 13 and 14, where X marks the spot. Before I tell you what happened, let me bring you up to speed. You know, of course, we talked about Moses being called by God in the burning bush. You know about the Israelites being enslaved 430 years. You know about the ten plagues. But it is the first Passover where things really got exciting. With their loins girded, staff in hand, standing the smell of roasted lamb the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread. And that night God provided a way of escape. And they went through the Red Sea on dry land. And it was God who had Israelites' enemies and Pharaoh follow them. And He caused their chariots to swerve and He closed in the sea around them and drowned them. They saw the works and the miracles of Yahweh. They saw it again when receiving the law around Mount Sinai, and they built the tabernacle to worship Him. They've been on their journey for a year now, and it's nearly over. Two million professing believers stand on the doorstep of the promised land. This is exciting. But it's time to plan well and count the cost. Moses told each tribe to choose a man to join SEAL Team 12 and go in and spy it out for 40 days. They did so. And here's the report and the recommendation they came with. Numbers 13 and 14. No doubt this land certainly does flow 
with milk and honey. Back step, back step. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and there are giants in the land. Ten agreed with this assessment, but it was Joshua and Caleb who said, yeah, that's true, but the Lord is with us and will give it to us. And the other ten said, no, we should not go. Watch this. It's not safe. It's not safe. And you can tell right now that the honeymoon's over. Two million people signed up for the promised land, but they didn't expect that it might cost them a little bit in suffering. I was really good with this journey until I realized there were some really big guys in the promised land. I guess I assumed that we were going to be able to just walk in and get handed the keys. Now, here's the question. What are they afraid of? I mean, because we're sympathetic to fear. Fear is a natural reaction. Fear is designed by God to provide a a fight or flight response when we see a wild animal, a snake, or I imagine in this case some Thor-looking warrior carrying a sword when you're used to only carrying a trowel. But is that what's going on here? Is that the kind of fear that causes a fight or flight reaction? Is that natural? The answer is no. This is not a psychosomatic reaction. It's a fear of what might happen. And it's a rejection of it. It's a desire to control rather to trust in the God who is in control. They had seen a countless number of signs in the wilderness, and ultimately here they are rejecting God's Word. And you say, Pastor, that's kind of harsh. You're not in their sandals. How do you know this is true? Well, the rest of Numbers 14 tells us the rest of the congregation agreed and said, quote, it would have been better to die in Egypt. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? It's not safe. I interjected that, but it's the same thing as the next part. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Even the Lord tells us Himself, verse 11, How long will these people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I performed in their midst? Verse 22, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not, watch this, listened to my voice. Don't miss that phrase, listened to my voice, as we went on our journey through Psalm 95, back to Numbers 14, and now we're going back to Hebrews 3. They have not listened to my voice, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. 
William Lane makes a good point here. He says the allusions to Numbers 14 are significant because they indicate that unbelief is not a lack of faith or trust. It is a refusal to believe God. It's not safe. It'll cost too much in suffering. Is not, I'm scared, though it's portrayed that way. Because it, it makes you look better and it garners sympathy. Those statements are in fact here. I don't want to follow God. I don't want to believe. This is not what I signed up for. Can you start to, to see the ramifications for these first century Jewish believers? Undergoing suffering on the metaphorical doorstep of the promised land. Have you ever thought about that? That compared to eternity, even us now are on the doorstep of the promised land. And yet, if we raise our eyes, what do we see on the horizon? Between us and rest between us and the promised land, there's going to be some suffering. But what is this refusal to believe? Well, remember how I said this is a, a prickby from 3.7 all the way to 4.14? Look down at chapter 4, verse 12. Look how he ends all this. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is not fear. This is a refusal. This is rebellion to trust in the Word of God. It's a refusal to hear and acknowledge and obey His voice. A hard heart puts one's fingers in their ears when God is speaking and turns the other way and hightails it for Egypt. You see the picture? Well, like Paul Harvey said, you know the rest of the story. What happened to them when they chose this? All of those over 20 died in the wilderness. They spent the next 40 years waiting for all of them to die out. Except who? Joshua? And Caleb and a bunch of youngins. Kadesh became synonymous for a rebellious, unbelieving heart. So you're a Jew or you're a Christian. When you hear Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea, that's a hard, rebellious heart. It doesn't want to hear the word of God doesn't want to trust the Word of God. And God sees it for what it is. Not fear. He sees it as rebellion. So how does this Israelite experience mirror the audience's journey? Or can we say our journey today? Well, that brings us to our second point. Exhortation to avoid a Kadesh heart. Now, there's some interesting bookends here. Verse 12, it says, take care in the New American Standard. And then in verse 19, it says, so we see. So you, you might want to say, see here, so we see. Those are the same words 
in the Greek. And he wants these believers to see something in this illustration so that they can avoid it in their situation. Right? We have to remember in order to understand this correctly that a heart, uh, a heart that believes will continue to respond to the Word of God. So the premise upon which all of this is built is that believers believe. And that's really deep, okay? We're not called believeds, that we believed at one time. No. Believers believe. Present tense. Continue to believe. Believers are those who believe. If coming to faith in Jesus Christ is repenting of your sin and self-worship and placing your faith, bowing the knee to our Lord Jesus Christ, then it is what He told the apostles to do when He called them, follow Me. Believers follow their Deliverer. As we saw the Israelites following the pillar of cloud during the day and the fire at night as led by their Deliverer Moses, to the eternal rest, the promised land, metaphorically. In the same way, our spiritual journey is similar. We've been rescued from sin and slavery, the bondage. We have had an exodus as believers. And we follow our Savior to the promised land. This is why 20th century evangelism is so off-kilter in so many ways is that it takes the doctrine of eternal security and it reduces it to something that is, is, is virtually unrecognizable, i.e. a sinner's prayer. Find a sinner's prayer in Scripture. I'm not saying that salvation is oftentimes affected through a prayer acknowledging that you're turning from sin and self-worship, asking for forgiveness, and committing your life to follow Christ. I'm not saying that that's not true. But somehow praying three lines, walking an aisle, signing a card, and getting dunked on the way out, that now I've got it and I can go live like Hades. we got kids in here today. No. Believers are ones who believe. So the premise of all this is that believing is something that is continual. The faith that God gives at salvation is the faith that will carry us through until salvation is consummated at glorification. And he says in verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be any of you... Okay, so now he's getting personal. I know that there could be some of you, but take care that none of you be found with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He says, be careful you don't have a Kadesh heart. And they know exactly what he means. They make the connection. They made it all the way to the doorstep. And they said, nuh-uh, we don't want to do it. Any one of you, verse 13, but instead, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this is very interesting here, because he's writing this to a church, 
And he's talking to people specifically, afflicting the comforted, you might say, or those who are drifting. And at the same time, he's saying, hey, and help your brother out with this and help your sister out with this. Because we partake in one another's spiritual growth. We're to partner with one another. So let me press a little application here. We're not at church today, are we? We are the church. We are the called out body of believers in this area, committed to the doctrines of the faith and to one another, and now we're worshiping by sitting under the Word of God. You say, okay, I agree with that. That's great. That's great. Great. Whose soul are you caring for? Who, who are you watching out for that they don't drift? Who's involved in your circle of discipleship, your small group, that you are actually checking on and making sure that they're continually drawing near rather than drifting away? Now, I don't want to offend anyone here, but the Bible does. And it says, if you're not caring for another's Soul. If you're not practicing the one another's, you're a consumer. And the Bible sees that as the height of selfishness. And odds are you're not letting anyone into your kitchen either. And it's all because you think, I can handle it. I won't drift away. It won't happen to me. I know more Bible than anyone in my small group. I've been fine for years. How arrogant could we be to think that this warning doesn't apply to us? He's writing to people who profess Jesus Christ, and he still says, be careful. Genuine faith perseveres. Suffering is on the horizon. James 5.19, my brethren, after writing virtually the whole book of James, he says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ." If we hold fast, that mirrors verse 6. If we hold fast. Look, God is speaking to us today in His Word. As He was speaking 2,000 years ago in His Word. As He was speaking 1,000 years before that in Psalm 95 in His Word. As He was speaking 450 years before that in His Word. Word. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. When the Word goes forth from this pulpit, when it goes forth from your mouth, the Holy Spirit uses that instrument as a tool in the Redeemer's hands. And He changes hearts. And He strengthens the faith of Christians. And He draws them closer and, and causes them to hold fast. And the most dangerous thing you can do is to think, it won't happen to me. I won't want to go back. I won't want to quit. And yet we see it now happening 
all over the country. And I'm not just talking about corporate worship. I could go through a list of five or six issues, Orthodox Christian issues that pastors are punting because suffering is attached to it. And they say, well, hey, I'm, I'm fearful. And they say, well, this is not good. And then they say, well, surely that's not what God means. Therefore, he must mean this. And they get the word of God to say exactly opposite of what it actually says. And you have entire flocks embracing it and drifting away. And the author here says, take care. Don't think you're any different than the Israelites. Don't think it can't happen to you. We are on a spiritual journey. We are headed towards the promised land. We are headed towards His rest. He has saved us. I don't know who in here for sure is actually a believer or not. We baptize you upon a credible profession of faith, upon seeing fruit in your life, but you know in your heart. And we're not where these first century Jewish believers are, but, but we're on the doorstep and we can see suffering across the Jordan. It's coming. I mean, I'm going to share a few things with you before we leave today. It's coming, and it's coming quicker than we realize. And it's crazy stuff. How are we going to respond? Can we look beyond it and see the eternal rest? Can we hold fast to the Word of God as the only thing that strengthens our faith? That is the only hope. But if we try to do it on our own reliance or apart from the Word of God, we will not stay the course. We'll go back to Egypt. And going back to Egypt, guess what going back to Egypt shows? You never left Egypt. That's what it shows. We know that's clear. 1 Corinthians 10 makes it clear that those were not God's people. A majority of the people who died in the wilderness were not God's people. 1 Corinthians 10. When verses 16 through 18, he, he tries to make it intensely personal to this first century audience and to us as believers by getting us to identify with the Israelites. He asks three rhetorical questions and then gives answers. I would encourage you to look at that for your homework as well. You know, he basically says, hey, who did this? Yeah, they did it. The implication is it could happen to you too. You could find yourself in this situation. They had experienced the exodus. They were led by Moses. They saw God's miracles. We too have experienced an exodus. We've seen God work. But, verse 19, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. It didn't say they weren't able to enter because they were scared. They weren't able to enter because of unbelief. And their bodies littered the wilderness for the next 40 years on the wrong side of the Jordan. I want us to talk about what that looked like briefly, because I want to get to the practical here. I can read Numbers 14, and i got to tell you, I'm tempted to just say, yeah, but that's those stinking Israelites. I never liked them much anyway, right? Always grumbling and complaining. They're not like us, the New Testament church. Such a godly bride we are. 
You know, I have a tendency to kind of just do that. I don't actually vocalize that until now. So, but you have a tendency to think, yeah, but those were Israelites. In fact, we kind of imagine in our mind that when those 12 spies came back, that they, they turned around and said, yeah, and I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. Kind of like an apostate, you know. Let's go back to Egypt. I want to worship the sun god Ra. That's what I want to do. That's, that's kind of how I picture it in my mind. I don't think that was it at all. It was not that black and white. I think it was something like this. I think there was an initial, why is God doing this? Pause, pause. Moses, you're the problem. You're not interpreting what God is doing rightly. I'm not convinced this is God's plan at all. God would not put our safety in jeopardy. This is your self-promotion. Hey, I'm all about Yahweh and the promised land at the right time. But I think we need to go back to Egypt for a while. We need to regroup. I need to put in a few more years as a bricklayer, get my pension. Maybe we'll, we'll try this later on. This is not a, not a good deal. You, you see how it sounds a lot more contemporary? I'll promise you that day there was no hard-hearted Israelite who proclaimed the name of the sun god Ra or who said he wanted to be atheistic. No, they cried out, Our wives and our little ones will become plunder, and this thing we're doing is wrong. They decided where they wanted to go, and they found the theological bus to take them there. And so it is with these first century believers. They're not about to punt Yahweh. They just kind of want to throw the Messiah Jesus under the bus, reduce him a little bit, take the, the edge and the pain off the suffering. They want to be able to go back and celebrate Shabbat and go to the synagogue and, and enjoy Passover again and not be ridiculed, actually get promoted at work, not be made fun of. Because if they stay where they're staying, where they've been, and they proclaim the name of Jesus, then guess what stands between them and the promised land? Suffering. And no one likes suffering, do they? Same is true for us. Same is true for us. Well, God sees it for what it is. So the question is, how are we not going to have a Kadesh heart? when suffering actually does come. Our goal as elders is how does this flock stay intact when our circumstances change? That's, that's really the goal. How do we keep moving forward? How do we encourage you, prepare you, sustain you, carry you if needed, and vice versa? How do we have a Caleb mentality? A Caleb heart yeah, they're big, but the Lord will see us through. Are we willing to come to worship, to worship corporately, even if in the near future the state says we can't? Are we willing to be identified with Christ when it costs us economically and socially? These aren't rhetorical questions. These are, these are costly questions. That even as I say them, I can feel the weight of what it will, will cost. Are you willing to witness 
when it becomes illegal to proselytize, to share your faith. Don't, don't think that's not far off. I was in the Emirates one time, which is certainly not a Pakistan, a Saudi Arabia. And while I was there, I uh, found out it was illegal to witness. And then I found myself some alone time with a, a fella right in front of the military general headquarters. And this overwhelming sense that I was at a crossroads. Hey, I'm over here on business. This is, I, I, I didn't sign up for a fine or to go to jail. And yet I'm talking with this guy who I'll promise you had never been given the gospel. If we don't decide now, we won't decide then. By the way, I did it, but it was scary. This is what's going on right now. This is a taste of the giants in the land. You know about the fines? Recently, another church, Santa Clarita, California, fined $15,000 for holding indoor services. It would not take too many of those to completely break us, I'll tell you right now. New Bedford, Massachusetts, another one was fined. Get this, the reason? Not necessarily for holding indoor services, but, quote, because an isolated outbreak of the coronavirus was traced back to the church. How do you even prove that? And why would a church even have to pay for that? And this one, in private correspondence from a pastor, a friend of mine in Northern Ireland, he said, quote, anyone in teaching, medicine, any public service really is going to have difficult days ahead. Any church here, which is part of the UK, that uses public space will, I'm sure, have to sign an agreement with the LGBTQ ideals. Evangelists are being arrested on streets because someone has said they were offended by what they said. Offense no longer has to be proven. We are entering difficult times, but he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's a Caleb right there, isn't it? Lord, help us not to have a Kadesh heart. Help us to be sufficiently fearful of that, so much so that we draw near to you and to one another, and we hold fast to the Word of God, the very thing that has brought us life. Thank you, Lord, for encouraging us in this warning and this exhortation as you have encouraged us these last four weeks in a different manner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.